The Laughter Permitted Podcast is brought to you by Ally. Do it right. Hello. Welcome to Laughter Permitted. It's Julia Gulia here with Lynn to the O Ozawi. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Julie. I am going to start by saying it's about time. About time for what? It is about time we had a Notre Dame grad on this podcast. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Go on. <laughs> Way go too on. many Stanford Cardinal. Uh-huh. I am thrilled to say fellow domer and champion runner Molly Seidel is here on the pod. And you know what? Thanks to Molly, not only do we have Notre Dame representation, we might have settled the is a cinnamon roll a donut debate once and for all. Yeah, that's crazy. I did not expect that out of this episode, honestly. <laughs> and the part of the episode where she does break down the debate is honestly up there with the Mia Ham split pants story. It is going down in laughter permitted lore. One of the best. Uh, so let's get to the episode. Molly Seidel is a professional runner who made headlines earlier this year. You may have seen when she ran her first ever marathon, which happened to be the Olympic trials because Molly does that kind of thing. And in her first ever marathon, she finished second to qualify for the Olympics. How crazy is that? Molly was also a stud in college. She won four individual national championships at Notre Dame in cross country, the 3,000, the 5,000, and the 10,000 meter races. And after her success at the Olympic trials and the marathon, comes as no surprise that Molly is focusing on that marathon distance now going forward, which we also talk about and why that distance suits her body better than the 10K. And she also discusses opening up about her eating disorder, depression, and anxiety, and her hope for change in the running culture. She is a wisdom-churning machine, so get comfortable listening. It's Molly Seidel. Hey there, Dope Village. Lynn and I have been involved in women's sports our entire lives, and truly, We've never been more excited for what's to come in this women's sports space. And one big reason, Ally. Ally has made a commitment to an equal media investment in women's and men's sports. And that means more money going to women's sports and more visibility for what these incredible athletes are accomplishing. Ally is on a mission to change the game for women's sports. So here at Laughter Permitted, we're going to keep telling the stories of trailblazing women. And every time you listen in, you are part of that change. To learn more about Ally, go to ally.com. Hey there, Dope Village. As y'all know, Ally has backed Laughter Permitted since day one of our podcast as our financial ally. And honestly, Lynn, I might just tattoo Ally on my forehead. And Ally is currently on a mission to change the game for women sports. And get this, along with being sponsors of the National Women's Soccer League, Atlantic Coast Conference, United States Golf Association, and the Las Vegas Aces, Ally has committed to an equal media investment in women's and men's sports. And you, my friends, can be part of the change by 
watching your favorite athletes crush it on TV, by going to women's sporting events in person, by, I don't know, maybe listening to every single episode of this amazing podcast on trailblazing women. Because every time you show up for women's sports, you are helping move the game forward. You can learn more about Ally by visiting ally.com. I was running around trying to find something that makes noise. So I think I'm going to have to rely on the ukulele. <laughs> I literally don't have oh. any noise making implements in my apartment. That actually That's is perfect. fantastic. We've never had a ukulele. You'll be our first <laughs> ukulele. Do you know how to actually play the ukulele? Oh yeah. Yeah. You can? I, do the, I do ukulele and banjo and piano. So I've got my piano is across from me in the room. Um, I've got my banjo here and my ukulele. And you can it's a play nice little like three? stress relief. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> it's fun. It's uh, we have a lot of free time as pro runners, so we need <laughs> to have some some hobbies. Okay, should we do this? Let's go. All right. So Molly, the first thing we always do is we have our guests set the scene, where they're at, what they're doing, how they're doing. So Molly, <laughs> set the scene, darling. Set the scene. It is rainy and cold in Boston right now. I just finished up a run. Um, I'm in my post-marathon uh, relaxing phase right now. So just easy running, enjoying drinking beers again. And <laughs> yes, I yeah. know you already. <laughs> yeah, for the most part, just kind of chilling back here in Boston. <laughs> nice, nice. What's and- your beer of choice? Oh, right now. Um, so we live right by Lamplighter Brewing, though I personally am more of a fan of Trillium, which is the other like bougie Boston. They do all their fancy New England IPAs, which are just so good. But I feel like we're moving into stout season, like stout and porter season. So probably should mix it up a bit. Wow. You are legit about all that, huh? Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know your stuff. Yeah. I was like, wow. I feel like that's just like a Boston millennial thing. <laughs> you need to, you need to have like too much knowledge of beers. <laughs> um, full disclosure, as you know, I've been stalking you since March about uh, to get on the <laughs> podcast. So I vow to you. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> She's probably like, who the hell is this woman who's texting me? And Don't worry. Me? I'm sorry. It's taken me such a long time to get on. It was, it's been a little bit of an inundation with, uh, with pod and media stuff. So I'm, I'm grateful that you were willing to be a little bit patient. Yeah. Because on February 29th, your life changed a little bit. It definitely did. Yeah. I literally, that blew my mind. I know I'm not the only one it blew the mind of, but when I saw that was your first marathon and to give some context again, Molly running in her First ever marathon, which happens to be the Olympic trials, qualifies for the Olympics. How in the heck did you do that? I still don't know. Like, it's so (laughs) funny because I look back on that day and it almost makes less sense, like, this far out. I'm just like, how the hell did that happen? Like, 
I did not eat, like, I didn't even know how much, like when you're, when you're racing, you have to take like a carbohydrate drink to fuel. I just like literally guessed how much I needed and like so many different things could have gone wrong. It was just such a mess of a day. And so looking back, I'm like, wow, I got so lucky. Not lucky. You're damn good, Molly. Give yourself some credit. Not lucky at all. I think, I think I was lucky in the sense that the, all the conditions played to my advantage on that day. Like I, so I personally like very hilly courses. I like really tough conditions. I feel like I, I'm fairly good at like rising to the occasion when conditions are very tough and conditions were extremely tough on that day. And so I think if it had been like perfect 70 flat like I think the race would have gone very differently (laughs) take me back to because I'm fascinated by this like your mindset in terms of how you approach that since you've never have raced a full marathon in your life Mm -hmm. is that kind of an ignorance is bliss kind of deal or is it you know extra anxiety or what's going through your brain Yeah, it was definitely nerve wracking. Like the day before, uh, obviously I was nervous about the competition going in. Um, I was nervous about so many aspects of it, but I think just not knowing how it was going to feel was the biggest thing because I've raced a lot of 5Ks. I've raced a lot of 10Ks. Like contrary to what the the media said afterwards, I I actually am a pro runner and I've been doing this for several years. (laughs) I didn't just wake up that morning and decide to run for the first time. Um, But I'd never raced or I'd never run further than 24 miles and I'd never raced over a half marathon. So I think my biggest source of nerves before the race was just like, when I get to that point, 20 miles in, like, I don't know how it's going to feel. And I don't know mentally if I'm going to be able to handle the amount of pain that I'm guessing I'm going to be in when I hit that point. And yeah, I think I, it almost was kind of nice though, going into it, not knowing what to expect, because I think it kept me from limiting myself in terms of like, I think I can run this kind of time. I'm going to shoot for that. I'm not going to go with the leaders because I, I know I can't run that fast. It was more of just like, I have no idea what this is going to be. So might as well just go out the lead pack and see when I die. <laughs> see when I die. <laughs> when did you realize like, Oh, I'm, I'm not just doing all right. Like I'm in a pretty good spot mm-hmm. here and there is a chance yeah. I could be going to the Olympics. Yeah, I guess when we hit the third lap, so it was eight mile laps. And then the last lap was, they added on a little bit. So going into that third lap, we're about 16 miles in and I was still up with the lead pack. I'm like, okay, like I'm feeling okay. Like I know there's still a lot of race left. There's still 10 miles, but this is like reasonable. And then when we hit 19 and Alphine and I broke away, that was kind of like the, oh, you're like in it now. Like if you can hold it, you'll make the team. But it, that was pretty terrifying. And that was definitely that like stepping off the edge of like, okay, there's no turning back now. You're either going to look like an idiot or you're going to make the Olympic team. <laughs> Is that where your instincts as, as you said, you're a professional runner, did that just kick mm-hmm. in automatically and you were just on autopilot and just went? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just about, it was almost more of this feeling of like, I didn't want to slow down. Um, cause like I was feeling com- or not comfortable. I was in an immense amount of pain at that point, but like, just feeling like I feel strong doing this. I don't want to slow down. Like this is the pace that I'm going to try and hold. And yeah, it was just kind of that feeling of like, yeah, I, I don't want to play it safe and stay with the pack. I want to go with it. 
That makes me so happy that you said you're in an, an immense amount of pain right there. <laughs> and I'm sorry. Gee, that's what everyone's like, you must feel so good, like making the Olympic team. Like, no, the last like two miles of that race were literally the most pain I think I've ever been in. It was horrible. Just like uh, controlled dying. Yeah. Controlled dying. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's the secret. I, I don't know. I'm dumb. I <laughs> obstinate <laughs> I think that's the thing is though everyone expects like oh when you're a pro runner it gets easier no it n- never gets easier you oh. just go faster while doing it so I know and yeah your time was 229 227 right? 227 okay mm-hmm. so 227 you're running over 26.2 miles what does that average out to per mile I just want people to understand what the pace is I want to say it was like five, it was around 530 oh, or maybe a little bit goodness. more that, yeah, maybe like 534. But by the end of it, we were clicking them off. We were going like 520 for some of those miles. And what? like, I wasn't even, I wasn't even checking my watch. I was just like going with it because at that point you almost don't want to know how fast you're going. Oh my God. Yeah. I can't even run a lap in 520, Lynn. <laughs> But also remember, this is my full-time job. <laughs> I always say that when people are like, oh. when I like run with people around Boston, cause it's a great community running scene. They're like, oh yeah. my God, I could never do that. Or what I'm like, well, I couldn't be an accountant full-time. <laughs> so like to each their own. <laughs> oh my gosh. And on top of that, like you didn't know, you really legitimately didn't know how your body would react because the longest you would ever run was 24 before that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Crazy. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, it's a little bit terrifying. <laughs> when you made the team, what went through your mind? And then you got a chance to celebrate with your family who was there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was just an immense amount of joy coming down that finishing stretch. Like it was finally downhill. So you could enjoy it <laughs> a little bit. There were so many people. It was like, it was like standing behind a jet engine. It was so loud. There were so many people pre COVID. Um, <laughs> But then, uh, yeah, you cross the line. First thought is like, oh, thank God I can stop running. Um, And then just like, it just hit. And like, oh my God, I just made the team. And yeah, that's basically been my dream since I was a little kid. So it was just a lot. And like my whole family was there. So many of my friends are there. It was just a really special day. Like, I don't think I could have imagined that day more perfectly. Like if someone had almost said what that day was going to be like, beforehand I would have been like no that's like that's crazy optimistic like that's way too good so it was just like everything that could have gone right went right on that day it was really awesome wow gosh and to have your whole family there who think they're just coming to watch you for your first marathon there's no exactly yeah no right If anything, it was probably more stressful for them because they all came with like these cutout faces of me. They were all so excited. Molly runs her first marathon. They were just planning on like (laughs) hanging out in bars during the race and like watching me. And then all of a sudden it becomes this immensely stressful thing because I'm about to make the team and they're trying to like run around to get back to the finish. They don't have credentials to get in. So if anything, I probably made it a less enjoyable experience for them. So... (laughs) Are you kidding me? They were probably so thrilled that you were <laughs> even the chance to, to get there. That's an, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Such a good story. Yeah. <laughs> well, part of the story when it came out, I think the, the headlines that all of us saw was that it was portrayed as, as if it were your first race in some ways where you were working as a barista, you had another job, donut loving <laughs> runner, but that's, that's not really the whole story. No, I think the media loves, uh, yeah, I think they loved that angle of like, 
anyone can qualify for the Olympics. <laughs> this girl did it on her first marathon. And yeah, it's not telling the whole story that I am a, a paid professional runner for Saucony. I've been running professionally for three years up to that point. I just had never done the marathon distance and I've been training super high mileage weeks. I mean, I topped out yeah. at 120 miles a week leading into Atlanta. So wow. it was kind of hilarious afterwards when like the New York times article came out and they made it seem like I had just taken a two hour coffee break and then decided to hop in this marathon on a whim. So donut yeah, and I beer think, in hand running yeah, while exactly. eating and checking. So, yeah. So I think it makes for a nice clickbaity headline. Um, but as with most things, you have to kind of dig a little bit deeper to get the real story. What was the, the impetus to the switch from 10 K to marathon? Take us through that mom. Um, yeah, I originally did it just because um, I actually, even going into the marathon trials, my original goal was to make the team for the 10K. I thought that was much more realistic. Doing the marathon was more a means to an end of trying to stay healthy up until that point, just because traditional track training um, gets me injured really quickly. Um, I've had a pretty long injury history and doing hard repeats on the track and the kind mm -hmm. of really intense interval work necessary to usually do the 10 K I just break instantly. So my coach and I kind of switched to doing more marathon type training. I was feeling really strong, um, feeling confident. We decided to do the trials because obviously it only comes around every four years when the Olympics are up. So we're like, we might as well get the experience. And then maybe in 2024, we'll have a more legitimate shot of making the team. So yeah, it was kind of crazy then of like actually making the team in the marathon. I'm like, Oh, thank God. I don't have to pretend like I like track 10 Ks anymore. <laughs> Why was it that the the marathon suited you more? I I saw somewhere or read somewhere saying that it just it felt better on your body. Yeah, it like the training just like everything clicked like when I like when I'm racing the marathon and I just had this when I raced London too. I don't know. I think just with how my body works like I love just staying at a hard steady pace for a long period of time and just something like I have a very efficient shuffling stride, which doesn't exactly lend itself to success on the track. Mm -hmm. um, but I can go for a long period of time at a steady effort and maintain, maintain that pace. So yeah, I think it's just kind of like, it just kind of felt like the race that I had always wanted to do. And then it just finally made sense when I was in Atlanta. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is like, this is what I really want to be doing. Incredible. It really mm -hmm. is to make such a switch. Obviously you were, you had, immense success in college at shorter distances. Do you think then marathons, mm. is it going forward? Oh yeah. Marathons are going to be my main thing going forward, but I I'll still do some track races. I'm planning on potentially doing a track race in December. Um, if I've got the opportunity and I'd still love to do the Olympic track trials next year. Um, and then obviously like doing some shorter road races as well. But I think like the marathon will be my focus. And obviously as we head into the Tokyo games, that'll be the big focus of my training over the next year. Wait, time out. Did you just say you're going to do the Olympic trials and the 10 K as well? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why, why not? I didn't get to do, I was injured in 2016 and I didn't get to do it. And I feel like just getting to do the track trials. Like if I have the qualifying time, hell yeah, I'm going to do that. Like that's just a super historic race. But could you do both? You technically can double. I would not double. And I oh, okay. don't think it's very truthfully like, and this isn't just me being modest. Like I do not think I can make the team on the track 10 K right now. That is going to be a super competitive race. Right. Realistically, I'm not going to make that team, but getting to just do the Olympic trials, like okay. that's just a lifelong goal of mine, regardless. But hey, hey, come on. That was your same mentality going into the marathon. <laughs> so 
<laughs> I know. I know that like that was my mentality going to the marathon, but at the same time, like track 10 Ks are a known quantity for me. And I know that I kind of struggle <laughs> with the track 10 Ks. So prior to the Olympic trials in January of this year, January of this year feels about 10 years ago. Yeah. You went on a friend of yours podcast, Julia Hanlon's podcast, Running on Ohm, and you shared your experiences Mm -hmm. with disordered eating, OCD, depression, and anxiety. And I first want to say, I highly recommend to our listeners to check out that episode. It was so beautifully done. And why did you decide to share that part of your life? Obviously running was out in the forefront, but to open up about that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think Julia is one of my best friends, um, here in Boston. I've actually been listening to her podcast longer than I've, I've known her personally. We met Mm -hmm. when I came out to Boston three years ago, started rock climbing together. And Jules is just someone that like, I personally, like, she's someone that I always go to, to talk about stuff like that. She's someone who's just great at listening. She gives just about better advice than anyone I've ever met. Um, and yeah, so when she asked me to be on the podcast formally, um, I like, we kind of just like started talking and it was like conversations that I normally just have with her and just feeling very comfortable. And, um, I didn't go into that podcast necessarily intending to like finally speak out about everything that I'd been through. But in the, like, once I was there, once I got talking, it just kind of felt like the right time to talk about it. So I didn't realize kind of what a big, what a big thing it would be, would become. Um, at that point, I kind of thought most people weren't paying attention to me much anymore, but I think it kind of resounded with a lot of people. Um, and then obviously after the trials happened or right beforehand, the runner's world article came out. So it definitely became more of a thing, but yeah, in the moment, it wasn't any sort of like, I didn't like go into it feeling like I'm finally ready to talk about this. It was more just like realizing as we were in it and I was talking with her like, okay, like, I think I finally, I like, I'm four years out from my, my treatment. Um, I finally feel like I'm in a place in my life where I'm ready to talk about this. What was the response you received from people in opening up about your experiences? Yeah, I think I was actually very pleasantly surprised. I had Mm -hmm. no idea what it was going to be like opening up. I've never, um, I've never hidden what I went through um, from people that I like, I know personally, like my friends and stuff, they knew I, I went through eating disorder treatment um, and had been in a, a like a residential clinic for a while. Um, but I just never like spoken publicly about it. So yeah, there was a bit of fear finally like speaking publicly. Um, and I was really surprised that a lot of people reached out and were like, yeah, this really resounded with me. I've been through this too. And I think unfortunately it is m- like so much more common in the sport of running and in, in all sports, then a lot of people would lead to believe. And I think a lot of women specifically go through these kinds of things. And a lot of women at the collegiate level and in collegiate running go through eating disorders and depression and, and anxiety. So I, I just felt like kind of this groundswell behind me after that came out. Um, but it's also a double-edged sword. Like I feel like after that too, then when I spoke out about it, um, a lot of people started coming to me and like, Hey, like, how do I fix myself? Like you've been through this, you've beat, you've quote unquote beaten this. Like, what do I do? What foods do I need to eat to be healthy? My doctor's telling me this, but you've been through it. How do you do? And I think my experience is very specific to me personally. And so I would say that to everybody, like number one, listen to your doctor, <laughs> follow your doctor. Number two, find help be able to like rely on your family and your friends to help support you through it. Cause that my family and friends were mm. 
incredibly supportive through my entire journey with it. But yeah, then finally, like just because one person experienced a certain thing and their outcome was a certain way, like, like I still struggle with stuff. And so it's like, yeah, I don't ever try to think like, oh, I'm not doing it correctly because I've been through eating disorder treatment and I, I'm not doing what Molly's doing. It's like, no, like everybody's experiences is different. Um, everybody approaches it a different way and, and trying to compare um, the healing process of, of dealing with mental health disorders. I think uh, I just don't find that it's, it's healthy to be like, oh, she's doing this now. So I should be in that same spot mm-hmm. with my recovery. It's just, it's hard. So yeah, I think just being able to have compassion for your, yourself and your own process through it. And that's the biggest thing. I've, I've heard you say Molly um, that, you know, there there's, everyone wants to tie a, you know, a bow on it and, and make it tidy and, you know, oh, I've, you know, I've gone public now. And so I'm better and that it's just, it's ongoing. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so back to that double-edged sword of, and I've always wondered this because you hear a lot of athletes and people who um, come out and talk about it, say it, it helps so much because you get all of this positive reinforcement back. Right. But also mm-hmm. I always wonder, is it also though this you're having to relive it again right and you're having to talk about it some more and there's that as well which has to be really difficult yeah truthfully that's been the hardest thing like full disclosure I like was just talking with my therapist this morning like and like it it is really hard because every time you talk about it you have to like like truthfully that time like my senior year of college my fifth year like that was the the worst time in my life. And so every time you talk about it, you almost kind of like have to go to the well again and again, mm. and it brings up a lot of stuff. And so, whereas like, I, I feel like I'm in a pretty good place with like my mental health, obviously COVID has been <laughs> difficult, but um, yeah, it's like, I finally feel like I'm in a place where I'm able to like manage it and do it on my own terms. But then it is hard when when you're the one of the few people in the public sphere that has like talked very openly about it, I don't think people would necessarily ask a lot of pro runners, like really deep probing questions about it. Like they wouldn't necessarily be asking like Emma Coburn or something like this deep stuff. But then it's like, when you're the one who has spoken out about it, a lot of people are kind of just like, Oh, we can like, yeah, we can ask everything about it. You did mention that it's, Mm. it's really common in running and it, and you know, I come from the soccer world and, and I would say it's, it's there. It's probably not as common as in running. And I'm, I'm, I, and when you say that, I always wonder, is it, is it more the culture of the sport? And I know this is an issue for a lot of female athletes, you know, mm. or yeah, is no. it the personality that's attracted to running? I think it's a, chi- like, it's a chicken and the egg type thing, because I think one, like there is a very specific personality that is like, brought to this sport like you see it kind of all the time of like the very type a little bit like obsessive um and like things that are like do help drive success in running can also be things that lead to mental health disorders or like it's like are they is it causing this are they successful because of these things you're never going to know so i think there's already like a predisposition to eating disorders of girls in the sport and then you take on top of that a sport that really like pushes low body weight, being thin, being leggy, like 
you literally have male coaches in the sport telling you, you need to weigh less or that Mm -hmm. you'll be faster if you just lost five pounds. And you see girls succeeding in the sport who are way too thin. And, and then even now, like when I'm racing a marathon, I think the hardest thing to understand that I didn't understand when I was younger is pro runners don't look like that all year round. Like when you're, when people are taking photographs of me at the London marathon racing, that is the lowest, the absolute lowest weight that I will be the mm. entire year. Mm. Cause I've just been finishing eight or eight to 12 weeks of running 125 miles a week. Like my weight is super low. That's like quote unquote racing weight. I don't train at that weight necessarily because right. that's not healthy. But then when girls are only seeing that, they're like, I need to look like that. 365 days a year. That's what's leading to a lot of these problems. So I think it's just generally, we need to change the dialogue in the sport. We need to change the idea that like, you have to be a certain weight to be fast, which you don't, you need to be healthy in order to be fast. And yeah, just like getting rid of that stigma. It's, I think it's just, it's multifaceted and it's really hard. And it's just, it's a problem that's so prevalent almost to like the point of cliche in college running where it's mm. just like, oh yeah, the skinny, crazy runner girl. And it's like, no, let's not, that shouldn't be what we're talking about. If someone is like way too skinny, don't just laugh about it. Like we need to be having a conversation. Yeah. Do, do mm. you feel like, and I know this, this came out recently with um, runners in Portland too, with, with coaching and the coaches mm. saying that, do you feel like it's getting better in terms of an awareness that, you know, Hey coaches, mm-hmm. you're also part of the problem here. Yeah. I think there has been a lot done over the last couple of years, whether it's Mary Kane speaking out about mm-hmm. the Nike Oregon project, um, a lot coming out about college coaches being verbally abusive or encouraging eating disorders. Um, and I think as like, especially as women transition into more roles of power in yeah. the college coaching world, I think that can do so much because like, that's not like, I've actually only ever had male coaches. So there, I have nothing against male coaches and I've been very lucky to have some really great positive body healthy coaches in my life, but not everybody's that lucky. And I think people like Lauren Fleshman, who she ran professionally, she's now coaching Little Wing, women like that in the sport who are incredibly knowledgeable, understand the female physiology and have these positions of power in coaching. I think that's kind of the revolutionary things that we need in this sport to finally start seeing change. Do you see yourself getting into coaching one day? Yeah, I would love to. I, um, I've coached at like some high schools and stuff. I currently volunteer or I'm a volunteer assistant over at Boston university. Um, and yeah, someday I would love to get into that. Um, probably after I'm done with my pro running career. Um, if anything, just cause like, I don't know, maybe, maybe my perspective on it of being someone who was highly competitive in college, but also dealt with serious eating disorders. Like, you know, a little bit more what to look for. Like, I know, I know all the bullshit because I, I said every single part of that to myself too, where it's like, no, I prefer my salads without dressing, honey. You don't, you don't. How, how has it been, uh, you know, on top of all of the shit we're dealing with, with COVID and, uh, and the pandemic, just the anxiety around waiting for the Olympics and, you know, when is it going to happen and is it going to happen? How are you dealing with all that? 
Yeah. So actually that's been less anxiety for me than I expected it because they just, they gave us a date. Um, it's a full one year postponement. So yeah. I believe it's August 8th or 7th of next year of 2021. So if anything, that's literally the only firm <laughs> racing date that I have between now and then, like even London was a lot more stressful than wondering about the Olympics, because the nice thing about the Olympics being po- postponed a full year was like, okay, like I'm super, um, inexperienced at the marathon. Like I can get in more training. I can get in more experience. Hopefully I'll get in another one with London. We had no idea whether it was going to happen, when it was going to happen, how it was going to happen, whether it would be a bubble, whether we could go over, whether we could even get into the UK. So like that was disproportionately so much more stress on my life than the Olympics was. Yeah. But yeah, I'm just trying to keep like an open mind, stay flexible about it. Like there's so much that's unknown right now. And so you kind of just have to roll with it. Cause I feel like every day is a new terrifying adventure. <laughs> Wait, can we just, uh, can you just brag on yourself a little bit about London, London marathon that you just ran? <laughs> Come on, go on. And, and London and, was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. Tell people how you did Molly. Let's hear it. So I got six, I got sixth place in the London marathon and I ran a two minute PR of uh, 225. Oh, and come on, keep going. There's one other stat you're missing, Molly. Nice. Oh yeah. Okay. So I don't know. I have heard so many different things. Some people say that it's the 10th fastest U S time. Some people say it's the ninth and other people said it's the eighth. So I'm just splitting the middle and going with nine. Okay. So yeah. you're the eighth, ninth, or tenth fastest. One of the three. One all of the, the yeah, one great. of the higher tens somewhere in there. At least it's one of one of the ten fastest. Times. I will tell you, I am not in the top twenty, so you beat me right there. <laughs> Good lord. Yeah, that was that was pretty exciting to get it, and especially on a day with as terrible of weather as we had in London, I was frankly pretty shocked that the race went as okay as it did oh my gosh and you shaved two minutes off of your olympic trial time crazy yeah congratulations if anything i just just the fact that we didn't have 1500 feet of climbing on the london course that probably was the two minutes right there (laughs) true was it surreal running running in london at this time it was crazy getting to do international travel if anything like we barely got to see any of actual london but just the fact of like getting to be on a plane and leave the country was wild. Like I was so worried up until the point that I was through customs that they were going to send me back. <laughs> Especially now with America. Nope. No American. Yeah, here. exactly. Literally the us four Americans were the biggest liability there. <laughs> right. <laughs> no one wants Americans right now. <laughs> just about. Yeah. Just about. Uh, we contemplated on the way back to the bus, just making a break for it and just like hiding out in London. <laughs> Staying. I don't blame you. Please take me. <laughs> take us away. Um, all right. So because there's no Olympics and we were worried that you weren't yet, I shouldn't say no Olympics. That's bad juju. I rewind. Yeah, don't that. say that. Knock that, on yes, wood. Sorry. No sorry. Olympics this year. No Olympics this year. We still wanted you to get some of those competitive juices going, Molly. So we do a little <laughs> competition here on Laughter Permitted. It's really well-named. It's called the Lynn game. We really need Mm. a better, we really need a better name for that. Does that stand for like an acronym or is that just straight going off name? I feel like it, you need to do like L Y N N the leave your nose, leave your nose maker. I know that Lynn. 
We'll we'll think of it. We'll think of it over okay. over the course of this trivia game. You are way more creative than we are for yeah, sure. Already, thank you, <laughs> Molly. Please reveal your noise maker. Oh, my noise implement um, is my trusty ukulele <laughs> because I don't have any other noise making implement here. I'm not going to play a song. I will simply use it to. Can you hear the the one note that I play? No, there, I want, I'll I just do a, one string. I want a whole song. I like your little donuts. Is Thank that you. a squeaky toy? Yeah. Excellent. That that is probably better than mine. I personally like the creative noisemaker, so I like the ukulele quite a bit. Ditto. Here are the rules to the game. There are five questions, all multiple choice. First person to get three answers correct wins. And Julie's kind of intense about this game. <laughs> it's on. It's on, Donkey Kong. The theme of this game is Battle of the Donut Lovers. Oh. Yes. All of the questions are donut related. Okay. Question one. Out of these three, which American city has the most donut shops per person? Is it A, Boston, B, New York, or C, Cleveland? I'm going to say Boston on this one. I feel like it has to be. 100% correct Just like, yes. to the person wearing a Red Sox Woo! hat. Yes. Yes. I, I was thinking, I was like, there's no way we can have as many Duncan as we do in this city and not <laughs> yes. be the number one donut location. Yeah. That's a Notre Dame grad right there. Putting it all together. Putting it all together. <laughs> okay. I didn't even squeak in. Damn it. Okay. Number two, how many donuts are made each year in the United States? Oh. Is it A, Ooh. 1 billion, Ooh. B, 10 billion, or C, 50 billion? Oh my God. Julie. Um, oh, Swaggy. My dog just jumped up. I didn't know she was in here. Um, I'm going to say 10 billion. I'm going to take it right down the middle. Damn it. You took my answer. <laughs> Correct. Thank you! One one, baby! <laughs> Number three, where was the first Krispy Kreme donut shop opened? In what city? Is it A, Denver, B, Houston, or C, Winston-Salem? Mm, I'll say Winston-Salem. That's Correct. North Carolina, right? Oh, shush! Yes! <laughs> Molly! Swaggy, Molly got it again. Uh, I think I, I can't remember where I'd heard that. Maybe it was when, because we used to race in uh, North Carolina all the time. So I feel like I'd um, heard that hot fact while I was down there. Hot fact. I wanted Literally to go to the hot. OG. <laughs> I know where the original Dunkin' Donuts is. Where's <laughs> that? Where is it? Boston. Ha, huh? Quincy, Massachusetts, just yeah. south of Boston. Yeah. I was going to say somewhere up there. So yeah. Molly, <laughs> up two to one. Julie, just yeah. so you're aware, you're losing. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. <laughs> Number four, how many varieties of donuts does Dunkin' Donuts offer? Is it A, 70, B, 210, or C, 500? What? Julie. Julie squeaked in first. 70. <laughs> Correct. Oh Damn it. Oh, I was okay. trying to like list them all off in my head of like how many there could possibly be. Right. Because I only get the there. same one anytime I'm there. 
I was thinking of all their little baskets they have. I'm like, there cannot be mm-hmm. 500 baskets worth of. Okay, hey, this is down to the wire. This is this is it. This is for all four. of the donuts. All of the donuts rely on this. Number five. Okay. The largest donut ever made weighed <sighs> 1.7 tons. What kind of donut was it? Oh my god! A, I would love to have taken a bite of that. A jelly donut. B. Oh. Glazed donut or C chocolate with sprinkles. Molly. I'm gonna go with classic glazed. Incorrect. No. Oh no. Okay. 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 It's all on you. So my choices were jelly or chocolate with sprinkles. Oh god, I would not want to eat a 1.7. Is that what you said? Ton pound mm-hmm. ugh, donut that had jelly in it. So I'm going chocolate like- with sprinkles incorrect <laughs> they did a what they did a one-ton jelly donut that's like 90 percent jelly that's gross that, that is gross that's we now so have bad. to go to the second ever tiebreaker the tiebreaker okay. oh okay. no which is rock paper scissors oh come okay. on there's got to be a better better on, solution you, than rock paper let, scissors Lynn, you have to come up with one more donut question think of it lynn is a cinnamon roll a donut do we need to like put together a full argument on this? Because I yes. feel like I yes. can go like deep into like yes. the logistics of donuts. Yes. No, a cinnamon roll is not a donut because a donut specifically rests on the base that it must be fried and yeasted unless it's a cake donut. A cinnamon roll is baked and spiralized. This is neither including the whole, though it's not filled with anything either. Just logistically, it doesn't include any of the constituent parts that a donut re- would require. That is a morning bun. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, I want That is going to be my loop to waking up every morning. Molly just went full on biochemist. Or uh, this is just this is just from someone who spent too long working at a bakery cafe and trying to explain what the different kinds of pastries are. Like, if you ever need to know the difference between, like, pan au chocolat and a morning bun, I'm your girl. <laughs> I'm your girl. Wait, time out. Cinnamon rolls in, like, traditional cinnamon, uh, sorry, not cinnamon stores, traditional donut stores are fried, Molly. You know a the tra- Wait, no. It's a tray bake, isn't it? You roll them up and you bake them in an oven. I think they are fried. You're thinking <laughs> of a cinnamon twist. There is a separate cinnamon, like a cinnamon twist donut. However, a true cinnamon roll is made as a tray bake and baked together. So the edges form together and they're pull apart. They're not fried at all. Ma'am, have you ever watched the Great British Bake Off? Because I've watched every season three times. I am not kidding. I'm going to do, I'm going to go down to the local JD Flannels, my favorite donut store, and I'm going to talk to them about what they do with their cinnamon rolls. We are going to solve this. Oh, I, I, I will die on this hill that a cinnamon (laughs) roll is made in a tray with multiple ones and you pull them apart because that's how the edges stay so nice. It's spiralized and stuffed in. You know, because my theory this whole time, this has been an ongoing debate on this podcast, Molly, is that because it's fried, I, I, I claim that a cinnamon roll is fried. 
like I'm not talking Cinnabon, like those are baked. That's not mm-hmm. a cinnamon roll. But like when you go to a true donut store, they're fried. I say they're always the donuts. Even I have never seen a fried cinnamon roll. I am uh, fascinated by this. Okay. So maybe I'm sending, I, well, I'm you, might sending be right. you my cinnamon. I'm sending you my cinnamon roll recipe at the very least, <laughs> which is as a tray bake and they are delicious. Uh, I think Molly wins that game. Just I agree, Molly for the win. <laughs> just out of sheer uh, sheer stubbornness. And the best is, and I will die on that hill. You come back to me with that. I think this gives insight into how you did so well in the marathon. There's like, yeah, you're not gonna, you're not gonna quit. I don't quit. I am obstinate to a T. <laughs> okay, next segment is called most pressing questions. Are you ready, Molly? I am ready. Is this like rapid fire? Yes. I heard you're an avid reader. Can you give us some book recommendations, please? Ooh, yes. I actually just finished a bunch of different ones because I read a lot on the plane. Um, My favorite author is Haruki Murakami. um, So I just reread Kafka on the Shore. That Mm -hmm. one was very good. Um, I read Ayn Rand's Fountainhead, which was an absolute doorstop of a book. It was like a thousand pages. Read that. Um, That was very good. Um, what was the other one? Have you read her Atlas Shrugged? I'm doing that one next because I need another doorstop as we approach the holiday season. (laughs) Um, what was the best other book that I just read? Um, what was it? Everything is Illuminated by Jonathan Safran Foer was very good. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I actually have like a list on my phone of all the books that I've read this year. I'm trying to finish at least 50 by the end of the year. So I'll let you know how that goes. Put that out on on social media. Yeah. Maybe I'll put that up by the end of the year if I can get them all. That's impressive. (laughs) Really nice. Yeah. Big, Um, big nerd energy over here. (laughs) Well, shared nerd energy. I I actually came up with that question to ask you. So I appreciate the answer. (laughs) Uh, favorite place on the planet to go for a run? Um, out my front door at my parents' house in Wisconsin. Mm. <laughs> Aww, how come? And then, it, but in the summer, and then you can jump in the lake right afterwards. Aww. Very cool. Is that the dock you were diving off of in Instagram? Was that in Wisconsin? No, that was actually up in Maine. My friend has a, um, he grew up like in uh, Great Cranberry Island. We're going to be up there for Thanksgiving as well. But that was, uh, yeah, in the ocean. The ocean still freaks me out. I'm more of a lake energy kind of person. Uh, okay. You don't know what's in the ocean. <laughs> Can't trust it. Um, I spent, we've been spending some summers up in Michigan and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I've grow, grown up in California in the ocean and all of a sudden I'm in fresh water and I'm like, Oh, this yeah. is amazing. I'm not all crusty when I get out. There's not things yeah. like, you know, nipping lake at life, my feet. Lake life is objectively the best. Uh, yeah. It's so much fun. I, as a Wisconsinite, I feel that. <laughs> yeah. It's really nice. Swaggy. Here's the donut. Go get it out there. Go. Um, Okay, last segment we do, Molly, is something called high, low cheer. And we do this around the dinner table with our kids. Uh, I usually do their high of the day, low of the day, and someone they cheer for, for that Mm -hmm. day. But for you, we're going to do the high of your career, the low of your career, and someone (laughs) you're grateful for as your cheer. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the high of my career was probably making the Olympic team at the Olympic trials. That was pretty good day. Pretty good. Um, 
Though I would also say winning my first NCAA championship at the original Hayward Field in Oregon was a pretty damn high. Um, the low of my career would have been last August, so not this past year, but the year before. I actually considered quitting the sport. Um, mm. I had re-injured my hip after I'd gotten surgery the year before. And I thought that was going to be the end of my running career. I ended up leaving the training group that I was in. And that's kind of what sparked me to get with my current coach. Um, and yeah, kind of start changing some, some stuff up. So yeah, I always kind of look to that as like that cliche that like, it's always darkest before the dawn of like, man, like I was in just such a low point and that's really what kind of caused me to start making a lot of changes in my life that allowed me to make the team this past February. Um, and then someone I'm grateful for is my college coach, Matt Sparks, who he was so incredibly supportive of me. Um, like he changed my entire collegiate career, um, is still a very close friend of mine. And when I was in that period of considering quitting the sport last summer, the first person that I called was, was coach Sparks. And I was basically like sobbing to him on the phone that I couldn't go through another injury cycle again. I was tired. I didn't want to do this anymore. I wondered if I didn't have any, he was like, Molly, stop you. Like, you're not going to quit. You're too stubborn to quit. And like, you've got too much left in you. So I will always be grateful for him being the voice of reason and for sometimes knowing me better than I know myself. Yay for the coach sparks in our lives. Yay, yay for the, yay for the coach sparks of the world. Right. We need mm. more of those in the world for sure. Those people mm. who are like, yeah, no, I'm not buying what you're selling right now. Yeah. You are, you're not the, yeah. The, the people that, yeah. The people that to like believe in you more than you think you can do. I can't wait to see how Molly Seidel just rocks it uh, in this coming phase of her career. Takeaways, Lynn, I must admit, I'm going to go first. Sure. That when Molly went full on donut biophysicist on us, mm-hmm. <laughs> I... I, I was so impressed. I just sat there and like, I, I wish there had been a camera on my face. I was like, she is totally breaking this down right now in a way that no one has ever done. She did concede though, however, because we had post-communication after this podcast. Via email. Via email. Uh, and she did underline and highlight and circle a lot of things. She did concede it could be a quote, variation of a donut. So I love that she's willing to die on her hill of donuts, but she's also willing to concede that I ultimately am right in everything in life. Well, you were wrong on one thing already. There was a camera on your face because we did this interview via Zoom. Oh, you're right. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to have to play that segment on, on social media for sure. We will put that out on social media without question. <laughs> okay, my second takeaway. I'm not done. My second takeaway... <laughs> Now, this is not the first time I've been reminded of the power of a coach or a person in your life who nudges you beyond your comfort zone, right? But when you hear the story about Coach Sparks, Coach Matt Sparks is the coach at Notre Dame, it reminds me that we all can play that role in someone's life. You don't need to just be a coach or a teacher or a parent, right? Like, there's all these wonderful opportunities in life to 
nudge someone along in the healthiest of ways and say, yeah, you got this. Because look at that. If she hadn't made that call, who knows? Maybe she hadn't gone back to running. Maybe she said, yeah, this is it for me. And it's been a great career. And I'm going to retire with these four national championships. And uh, and then she would live with that for the rest of her life, wondering how she would have done. And so for him to say, yeah, no, uh-uh, I'm not buying it. You got this. Um, the power of those people in your life and surrounding yourself with those people in your lives is just a great reminder to all of us. Your takeaways, Lynn? I have two takeaways. One, if you get into a debate with Molly Seidel, you best bring it. We learned that. You learned that. <laughs> Number two, I love Molly's willingness to go for it. Yeah. So going for it, even if there is an unknown, like running your first marathon at the Olympic trials. And it made me think of one of the best lines we've ever had on the podcast. Season one, Mary Carrillo, be the idiot who says yes. My motto in life, always <laughs> be the idiot who says yes. Okay. Questions permitted, Lynn. What do you got? This one comes from at N Burmy via the Twitter. He asks, if you can't watch soccer, what other sport would you watch? Oh, N Bernie, thank you for this question. This is very timely in my life. Um, if I can't watch soccer, then I'm which, watching Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I am. And for those of you in our dope village who have not watched Ted Lasso, you must. I don't say this about many shows in life. You absolutely must go watch. Whether you're a soccer fan or not, it isn't about soccer. It is about life. It is about positivity. Mm -hmm. it, you will find yourself giggling and smiling. I said this to Lynn. And Lynn, what is your reaction? But I didn't want to oversell it, which I'm now doing. I'm going to undersell it. But <laughs> Ian, my husband, kept, honey, kept going, honey, you're overselling it. You're overselling it. That's danger, <laughs> danger. Don't oversell it. I was like, you're right, Lynn. It's not that good. You should just watch it. It's so good. Here's my breakdown. Ted Lasso is my favorite show of 2020. I will even say it is exactly what I needed right now. It's joyful. It's funny. It has so much heart. I literally catch myself, like, squealing out loud. I'm like, oh, my God, I love this show so much. For anyone who has not heard of this show, and that was me a week ago, it's on Apple TV+. Plus. It stars Jason Sudeikis. Who I am like, oh, my God, I love you, Jason Sudeikis. Let's just put it out there on the pod. I love you. Okay, carry on. Who doesn't love Jason Sudeikis? He's amazing. He did this Ted Lasso character for some NBC promos several years back when the network was starting to air Premier League games. And the premise of the character in those promos is that an American football coach was hired to coach European football in the Premier League. And now an entire show is centered around this character, Ted Lasso, an American football coach, fish out of water, coaching in the Premier League. It's so well done. It's so well written. It's... Um... You know, Brendan Hunt plays Coach Beard, his assistant, who's also an American who comes over, who's just brilliant as well. The acting is so good. It's it's fantastic. So I'm told I'm totally doing what Ian told me not to do. I'm overselling it. It's not that great. You shouldn't watch it. I I ended up binging it. And when I was done with the last episode, I was a little bit sad. And then I realized that there was really only one thing I could possibly do, which was then to start rewatching the entire series. Yes, I know. I'm going to do that. And I'm actually going to have a pen and paper to write down all the great quotes from it because it's so funny. So 
Go check it out. Definitely. All right. With that, we'll close out another episode and to our dope village. Just want you to know we love you so much. Be sure to spread kindness to others. And while you're doing that, spray a little bit on yourself as well. Uh, And as we leave you today, a friendly reminder to subscribe and rate us. Like literally go in there to Apple Podcasts and tell us what you think. Tell us what resonates with you, what means a lot to you, because we love the comments you leave there. And literally, Lynn reads all of them. I have the screenshots she sends me (laughs) to prove it. Uh, You can also follow us on Spotify, and we're on the iHeartRadio app. It's it's a global takeover, really. We're everywhere. Uh, So let's keep growing this dope village of ours. Thank you to our sponsors, Ally Bank and Dick's Sporting Goods. Be sure to support both of them as well. A shout out to Kate Diaz, a Julie Foudy Sports Leadership Academy alum for our catchy theme music, which she wrote and composed. So go check her out. And as always, kids, remember, sing it with us. Laughter permitted. Man, have you ever watched The Great British Bake Off? Wake up to the best sports story you'll hear all day. Monday through Friday, host Pablo Torre brings you an inside look at the most interesting story at ESPN as told by the top reporters and insiders. That's ESPN Daily. Subscribe and listen along with Laughter Permitted, wherever you get your podcasts.